At this point in time, we are going to transition into the sermon, but before we do that, let me take a moment and let's pray. Father, I thank you that you're a God who is relational, um, that you're a God who is merciful, and so you have, in your mercy, reached out to us. Father, you sent your son Jesus to be a light in the darkness, and so, Father, I pray that this morning that we would encounter you, that we would encounter your son through the power of your spirit. And Father, as we do so, I pray that, like Thomas and like Mary, that our experience, our interaction with you, with your son, would change our lives completely. Not only what we think, not only how we live, but even down deep into our hearts, how we feel. And so, Father, I pray for this unmistakable encounter with you, the living God, this morning. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. So when I was in uh, sixth grade, we had a very late snow. If I remember correctly, it was all the way into the month of April. And uh, it was so much snow that they canceled school, which is great news. It was about eight inches. So I woke up that morning and looked outside, and there was already, you know, three or four inches on the ground. And so I was thrilled. I quickly, you know, put on my snow boots and put on my snow pants and got all bundled up, hat and gloves, and I got outside as quickly as possible. Little by little, the neighborhood kids sort of trickled out, you know, bringing sleds or trash can lids or pieces of cardboard, whatever, would slide on the snow. Pretty progressively, snowmen were rolled into existence, and snow forts were created. I don't remember the snow forts that happened in the southeast, but you couldn't, there wasn't enough snow to make a big snow fort, so usually you had to, about this much room to crawl under it. It wasn't very effective, but it was still pretty cool. It also wasn't enough to crush you if it caved in, which is the good news. Anyway. So it was like this, you know, picturesque scene from a Calvin and Hobbes cartoon, if you've ever seen the, the cartoon Calvin and Hobbes. And it was all just beautiful and picturesque until Gary Ballou showed up. Now, Gary Ballou was a neighborhood kid who I have always jokingly said he was kind of country with a K. And not only that, but he was twice as big as all the other kids in the neighborhood. And he wasn't an evil kid. He wasn't a bad kid, but he was just sort of rough. And he definitely didn't know his own strength. So when he arrived, he began smashing those snow forts. He began smashing those carefully constructed snowmen, using them as tackling dummies. And any kid that was unlucky enough to get too close to Gary Ballou would get the same treatment. Now, fortunately, in real life, normal life, I was fast enough to elude Gary Ballou and stay some distance from him. But in the snow, my speed was negated by the fact that, A, there was snow on the ground, B, I had snow boots on, and C, I was bundled up in these snow pants and a jacket that made me unable to move almost. And so eventually, in the morning, I got too close to Gary Ballou, and he caught me. He got his hands on me. If I remember correctly, he threw me on the ground, face first. My glasses went flying in the snow. And then he proceeded to do belly flops on top of me over and over again until my mouth was filled with snow, and I could barely breathe. And he just laid on top of me for a little while. Um, And I can remember barely being able to move. It was sort of this horrible feeling, almost like being held underwater at the pool, if that's ever happened to you or when you were a kid, if that occurred. And uh, the problem was, is that he was just too big. He was too powerful. And I was too weak to get him off of me. Now, eventually, fortunately, he found some other poor kid uh, to torture and he let me go. But I can still remember that feeling of being powerless. Some of you can easily identify with that feeling of powerlessness. Maybe you feel powerless to change a narrative that someone has about you that isn't true. You may feel powerless to help a struggling son or a daughter or maybe a brother or a sister. You may feel powerless against your own emotions. Sometimes you may feel overwhelmed 
by your emotions. You may feel powerless against some addiction. It may be that you feel powerless to change some circumstance in your life, a job, maybe singleness, maybe a relational stalemate, but we're all familiar with that feeling of powerlessness. Now, the good news is, is that the story of Easter is a story of power, particularly it's a story about God's power in displaying or on display in raising Jesus from the dead. It's a story that should remind us that God employs that same resurrection power to rescue us, his children. That's what Paul wrote about in Ephesians chapter 1 when he said this, how incredibly great is his power, that is God's power, to help those who believe in him, the same mighty power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead. God uses this power to help his children, but how? Today we'll talk about three different ways, although there are more than that, but we'll talk about the three different ways that follow. God uses his power to forgive our past. He uses this resurrection power to help us in our present, and he uses this same power to guarantee, to ensure our future. Let's begin with the problem of our past. Now, in a pluralistic culture, Easter is appreciated from an anthropological perspective. Anthropology is the study of human societies and their evolution. An anthropologist would equally respect the sun god of the Mayas, the rain god of the Incas, and Set, the god of chaos from ancient Egypt, as well as the god of Christianity and the concept of the resurrection. But that anthropologist wouldn't actually believe in the historical validity of any of those events. This pluralistic view of the resurrection was expressed recently in a London Times article entitled Universal Truths. The writer suggested that everyone should be able to embrace the Easter message. Good Friday, the author wrote, commemorates sacrifice. It's a good thing. The giving of oneself as a martyr for the love of others. That's a wonderful thing. So Easter is the achievement of victory through suffering. These are universal spiritual truths. And the more interaction acquaints those of different faiths with the beliefs of others, the clearer is the common acceptance of those truths, the author says. So in conclusion, the Easter message draws all the devout together. So in context, the author is referring to the major religions of Islam, Judaism, and Hinduism. He goes on to say, from suffering, goodness can triumph. That is what all faiths in Britain can proclaim and what they can come together uh, where they can come together this weekend. So the author is able to make all those claims, many of which are actually true, but ultimately he's able to make some of those claims because he doesn't actually believe that the resurrection occurred 2,000 years ago outside of Jerusalem. To the author, this author from the London Times that I just wrote, the resurrection is metaphor, not history. To the 11 disciples who died as martyrs, however, the resurrection was essential. To Mary Magdalene, to Paul, to the Roman centurion in Joppa, and to the Philippian jailer, the real historical resurrection of Jesus was essential to Christian hope. So much so that Paul could say in 1 Corinthians 15, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. In other words, for Paul, it mattered. For Paul and for the early Christians, the resurrection was foundational. Christ's work wasn't complete when he died upon the cross, in fact. There was more work to be done. Forgiveness 
depended upon it. That's why Paul in Romans 4, 24 and 25 could say, it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Justification for Paul is a legal term which means to be declared righteous, right? Regardless of your actual history, regardless of your actual record, the beauty of justification is that you are declared righteous. In other words, according to Paul, we are declared righteous in the courtroom of heaven despite that past performance because Jesus not only died on the cross, but because he rose again. In other words, the resurrection matters. If God could cast aside at Easter, if he could cast aside death, then he is more than able to cast aside our rebellious pasts as well. That's why David was able to write in Psalm 103, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Some of you are haunted by your past, right? Maybe that past was in high school. Maybe that past was in college. Maybe it was early in your marriage, or maybe it was last week. But whatever your sin, whatever your brokenness, whatever your rebellion, and whenever that occurred, if you cast your hope upon Jesus as your Savior, then God's resurrection power has removed those stains as far as the east is from the West, he refuses to ever bring them up again. But God doesn't just use his resurrection power to declare us righteous and to forgive our past. God also uses his resurrection power to be at work in our present. Look at Romans 6, 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Jesus spoke about this newness of life when Nicodemus came to see him at night in order to find out if Jesus really was the Messiah. Jesus spoke to Nicodemus. This was a member of the Supreme Court there in Israel, and Jesus talked to him about being born again. And he said, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. God, speaking through Ezekiel, affirms this same newness of life. In verse 25, we read, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you, I will remove from your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. What each of these passages make clear is that God doesn't just use his resurrection power to forgive sins. God uses that same resurrection power that raised Jesus from the grave to make us new, to make us new creatures, to give us new abilities, to give us new life, to give us a new heart to make us new persons. Krista became a Christian in high school. This is my wife, Krista, for those of you who don't know her. 
Krista became a Christian in high school, and when she did, she changed in any number of external ways. I've spoken over the years a couple times with Krista's stepmom, who is not a believer, and uh, she talks about when the time that Krista became a Christian, and she says this about that transition, and this is the same thing she said on numerous occasions. She says, when Krista began going to church, she started cleaning her room, right? That was sort of the, the link for her was not that she had become a Christian, but rather that church was a good thing for her, and that, the, that because she started going to church, all of a sudden she started cleaning her room. Something did, however, switch at that moment. Something happened internally that changed her externally. Another friend of mine from Gainesville, Georgia, had a daughter who became a Christian when she was in high school, and she said of her daughter afterwards, she said, it's like she had a personality transplant. Her life, the life of her daughter, instantly began to transform. She went from being combative and bitter to being a totally different person almost overnight. The resurrection isn't just about God's power to forgive our sins. The resurrection is also about God's power to make us new people. Paul uses himself as an example of this very truth in 1 Corinthians 15 when he says this, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, that is the other apostles, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. We see here that Paul affirms two different things. He says, first of all, that God uses his gracious power to call him to a new life, to make him a new person. We read of this dramatic conversion in Acts chapter 9. But the second thing that we see Paul affirming here is that God continues to be at work in him. He says, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. In other words, this, this thing inside of him, this power, was ultimately grace from God that allowed him to be who he was. God's resurrection power is not only at work in Paul, was not only at work in Jesus, but that very same resurrection power is at work in you and in me. There's some of you in here this morning who may have never experienced that new life or that restorative power, but if you're honest with yourself, you know that you long for it. To use the language of Ezekiel, you know that you still have a heart of stone, and what you deeply desire is to ha have a heart of flesh. In other words, to be fully human, to be the person that God created you to be. You know that your heart is actually keeping you from that. And if you're within the sound of my voice this morning, then I believe that God is offering you a new heart. He's offering you a new record. He's offering you a new life. Jesus said, behold, I stand at the door and knock. It is my prayer this morning that you would open your life to Jesus and that you would trust him as your Savior and also your Lord. There are others of you here this morning who have been given that new life. You've been given a new heart, but you feel a little bit like sixth grade BP trapped under Gary Ballou, powerless. I want to remind you that the same power that raised Jesus from the grave is actually available to you, right? It's, it's at work in you, but it's available to you. The power that made Paul an apostle and was at work in him is at work in you even when you feel powerless. Philippians 2 reminds us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. 
For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. There is work to do when you feel trapped, but you're not alone and you're not powerless. God is working within you to will and to work for his good pleasure. So God's resurrection power cancels our debts, forgives our past sins. God's power, that same resurrection power, is at work in us even now, making us fully human. It's available to us. But finally, what we see in the resurrection is that his power guarantees, ensures our future. We read this claim in 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul writes the following, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. We see the same idea in Romans 6 where we read, for if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. One of the more well-known passages of the resur- on the resurrection of believers is 1 Thessalonians 4, where we read the following, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who have fallen asleep, that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep that has died. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. In these verses, we see any number of key points about how the resurrection impacts our future. But most importantly, these passages make it clear that there will be a physical bodily resurrection. There's mystery around what our resurrection bodies will be like. Personally, I'm hoping that I'll be taller. That'd be great. What we do know is that our resurrection bodies will be like Jesus' resurrection body. The Heidelberg Catechism affirms the Bible's teaching on this when it asks and answers the following question. What comfort does the resurrection of the body offer you? Not only shall my soul after this life immediately be taken up to Christ, my head, but also this my flesh, raised in the power of Christ, shall be reunited with my soul and made like Christ's glorious body. We will rise again, and when we do, we will have a body like Jesus' body when he rose again. Jesus ate, and we will eat. Jesus drank, we will drink. Jesus walked, we will walk. He breathed, we'll breathe. Jesus shook hands, and Jesus hugged, and we too will have a body that allows us to do all of those things. And we'll be able to do that all without any corruption or pollution of sin. That same Heidelberg Catechism I read just a moment ago goes on to ask another question. It says, what comfort do you receive from the life everlasting? And it answers, since I now already feel in my heart the beginning of eternal joy, I shall after this life possess perfect blessedness. That means the state of being made right, the state where all is made well. 
such as no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor the heart of man conceived a blessedness in which to praise God forever. In other words, all of your dreams come true. Everything you wished was true about who you are in a godly way will be made true. When we're raised from the dead, we'll finally be free from the brokenness that haunts us now. Depression, envy, fear, lust, and most importantly, distrust of God's goodness to us. We will finally be fully human. We'll be the people that God created us to be. And all of this is made possible not by your power, but by God's resurrection power on your behalf. If God had the power to raise Jesus from the dead, then he has the power to raise us and make us whole as well. I've got a friend named Ryan Stanger who has uh, talked about um, this man named Larry Allen who you see on the screen here and has told this story that I've found recently. But Larry Allen was inducted in the NFL Hall of Fame back in 2013. Uh, He played guard for the Dallas Cowboys and was voted to the Pro Bowl 11 times over his career. That's pretty amazing. And several years ago, the New York Giants all-pro defensive tackle Justin Tuck was asked who the strongest player in the NFL was, or the strongest player he'd ever played against anyway. And without even pausing to think, he immediately said Larry Allen. And what's interesting is the data backs up his, uh, his statement. Allen's bench press max was 705 pounds. 705 pounds. I don't know if you see those arms, but that's a lot of weight. 705 pounds. His squat was over 900 pounds. He once set a record for 20 reps at 530 pounds pounds. Now, for those of you who have never lifted weights before, you're just going to have to trust me when I tell you that that is absolutely amazing. Like, that is real power. Tuck went on to talk about how Larry Allen would walk up to the line of scrimmage, and uh, if if a running play was called to go behind him, he would have his left hand in the dirt, and he would take his right hand and put it up in the air, and he would go, choo, choo, and pretend to be a train, and he would let the defenders know that the run was coming their way, but he was so powerful that even though the defenders knew that the ball was coming that way, they couldn't do anything to stop him. No one could. Tuck described one time making a tackle seven yards downfield and looking over at the sidelines and being confused when he saw his coaches and fellow uh, pro bowler Michael Strahan giving him a thumbs up, right? He was like, what are you talking about? And later they told him, it's like, that's the best anybody has done all game long. Allen was so powerful that he could do whatever he wanted and no one could stop him. In the resurrection, we're reminded of God's power. His power to raise us from the dead. His power at work in us in our day-to-day lives. His power to forgive our sins. God is more powerful than Larry Allen. God is more powerful than Gary Ballou. God is more powerful than Satan, and God is more powerful than you are. He cannot, he will not be stopped.